We're putting on a pretty red dress and going inland for our greatest days, because sadly the Flash is going to live forever. I'm Van Connor. And I'm Adam Ball, and this is Off Screen, your seven-day guide to everything movies. Boom. Groovy. Hello and welcome back to the show. Well, here we are, another week and another load of movies to look at that Van has seen and I haven't. Uh, so um, we've got uh, we've got greatest days to look at. We're going to look at uh, Pretty Red Dress and The Flash, which a lot of people are talking about at the moment. But first, let's start with You Can Live Forever. So from what I can gather, is this a kind of coming of age movie? Yeah, did you did you ever see the uh, was it the the miseducation of Cameron Post a few years ago with uh, Chloe Moretz? Do, do you remember this one at all? This no. is about three three or four years ago. It was a nineties set uh, LGBT coming of age drama, and this is I think a, a, a similarly pitched nineties set LGBT coming of age drama. Only whereas that movie sent Chloe Moretz to a gay conversion camp, this sends a gay teenage girl to a Jehovah's Witness community. So you have a, a young teen named Jamie, who I think is sent to, I might be Ontario, it's like a French, you know, French Canadian community. So the, they, they vary between English and French at times. And she's played by, I have to look up the actress's name, it was uh, Ar- Anwen, Arwen, Anwen O'Driscoll. And uh, I will get to Anwen O'Driscoll in a minute. She is Jamie. She's uh, sort of the wayward teen lesbian who is sent to, you know, live with the family in the, the, the remote family the Jehovah's Witness community finds herself drawn into a romantic uh, you know must have teen love affair with another member of the community who's played by I gotta look this up as well June Laporte as uh, Marike and of course before you can say uh, forbidden fruit their relationship draws the ire of the local community they start to arouse suspicions you know the, the, the religious community starts to want to keep them apart but of course they can't really deny them a friendship and rules and tradition and culture you can sort of see where this is going to go so I've got a clip for you this is from ob- this is obviously sort of third act material as you'll very quickly ascertain from the content I know this doesn't make sense to you I can't force you to do this. Nobody forced me. It was my idea. All that matters is that in the new system, we're both there. You and me. That's why you're getting married? If we both live in the truth, we won't have to be apart. What am I supposed to do? Nobody wants me here. I'll talk to my dad. He'll talk to your uncle. It'll be okay. You won't have to leave. Am I supposed to marry Simon then? When paradise comes, we can be there. Be together forever. We can do all the things that we planned. You don't have to do this, please. Just come with me. Does this movie kind of attack issues that are in, you know, everyday life for for gay people, I suppose? Well, for gay people in in, in in strict religious communities, definitely. And there's there's a certain universal element to that as regards, you know any religion. You can supplant the Jehovah's Witnesses element of this for, you know, let's let's just say Catholic or Islamic communities, in a sense. Uh, I'm thinking, for instance, what was the Rachel Vice one a couple of years ago with uh, Rachel McAdams, which was set in Britain, which was about uh, the, the, the Hasidic Jewish community, the Orthodox Jewish community, very similarly pitched thing, although they were much older women, they were adult women. And uh, it, it's like, this plays on, on a similar wavelength. It's the first feature film effort from Mark Slutsky, who uh, had made pretty prior to this had made loads of short films and I think this is his uh, his feature debut but he's co-directed this with I think Sarah Watts 
who herself is a, is a Jehovah's Witness. She's from an, an, a Jehovah's Witness family. So you have to imagine there is a semi-autobiographical element to this. And it's, it's quite a powerful drama. It's quite stirring stuff. The performances from LaPonte and O'Driscoll are really, really good. And the writing, it's, like, it's not going to keep you guessing because you kind of know that the, this story only has two, maybe three possible endings. At best, you know what I mean? You've seen one of these movies, you've kind of seen the general pitch that they're going to go for, and you know it's 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 the it's the family with a dog problem. You know what I mean? When you've got a, a movie about a family getting a dog, you've got the Marley and Me issue of there's only so many ways this is going to end realistically. You've got that here to an extent. You know, you know, you know what I mean when I say that? Like, you know there's only a couple of possible ways out for this yeah. story. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you, you've got that going through, and you know all the way through that it's it, it's one of the three possible endings, really. You're going to go broke back. You're going to do this one. You're going to do that. Those kind of permutations for the ending. I'm not going to tell you which they use, obviously. Uh, but the performances uh, from LaPonte and Driscoll are great. They are really, really good performances. And the, the script is, is tight. It's very sharp. It's quite moving. It's quite soulful. You, you do buy into... Not just the chemistry, but the actual romance of it. You actually get the the, the pull between these two girls. You, you do feel like sort of taken in by that that literal magnetic pull of sorts. Um, it's undercut ever so slightly. This is this is one of those me things. I know this is very much a me thing. Okay, it's undone ever so slightly on a sort of comedic level by uh, Anwen O'Driscoll bearing an uncanny resemblance to the adult film actress Adriana Chechik. Which I, you know, what I mean, just, just a bit, bit of a jarring, <laughs> bit of a jarring thing. And if you know who Adriana Chechik is, just off the top of your head, you can probably guess why. But uh, yeah, but I say I was taken in by by the chemistry, by this teen love story. I think it's a better movie than, for instance, than uh, the Miseducation of Cameron Post was. Definitely, I, I, more than that. Um, it's not up to comparative like Brokeback Mountain level. It's not anything quite as accomplished as Brokeback Mountain was back in 2006. But I do think this is a really stirring, powerful, poignant love story. I think the the direction of it, it has a flow, it has it, it has a, a sensibility that I think fits the material really, really well. And I, I say, I think it's an absolute win. I don't know necessarily if it's going to be a big crowd pleaser because it's not, it's not got the punch, I think, that it would need to be to be uh, Saturday night at the multiplex, you know, popcorn shocking back crowd pleaser. But I think for art house daytime cinema going crowd, gangbusters, absolute gangbusters. This will find its mark. Absolutely brilliant. Um, obviously, this has been released this month, Pride Month, for an obvious reason. It's distributed by Peccadillo, who, you know, are the go-to, you know, the definitive LGBT film distribution label, at least in the UK, as far as I know. I'm not sure if they do it internationally. Um, and I will say, again, I mean, this, this, keeps, this keeps up the standard of the Peccadillo label in the same way that we talk about Dog Wolf, for instance, as being the de facto label of great documentaries. Peccadillo are that for your LGBT dramas. And yeah, standard, absolutely upheld. Another winner. Uh, great great debut for Mark Slutsky and in turn uh, Sarah Watts as well. Of course, Sarah Watts also gets the, the screenwriting credit, I would imagine, slightly more of a degree coming from the background she does. Uh, yeah, two thumbs up from me. Absolute winner, I think. So this is called uh, You Can Live Forever in Cinemas from Today. Okay. Well, we are moving on in just a moment. We're going to look at The Flash, which a lot of people have been um, you know, talking about this week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we will find out if it's good 
or bad in just a, a flash moment. In the pan. Is right? it a flash in the pan? So, That's what you want to say. <laughs> there it is. There it yeah. is. Is it a flash in the pan or not? We'll find out in just a minute. So stay where you are. Hello and welcome back to the show. Right, let's go straight in with it. Um, the Flash, it came out on Wednesday. Van Collar has seen it already. Talk to us. What was it like? Whoa, okay. I mean, I'm not going to bury the lead on that one. Uh, I, I will bury the lead on that one. Sorry. Uh, right, so <laughs> it's, it's the feature film solo debut of The Flash, who we previously saw in Batman vs. Superman and Justice League, both versions of Justice League. I think that's it for the character. I think that's the only thing he's been in. He didn't appear in anything else. So this will be Ezra Miller's third canonical, but actually fourth, because there's two different versions. Justice League appearance as Barry Allen slash The Flash, who you say you're aware of the character presumably from where do you know the character from out of interest? Uh, well, I don't really massively, apart from when I was a kid, just um, just seeing the, I think it was a cartoon version. Cartoons, because he is. I think he might be in the Super Friends or something like that. Some one of the cartoons. I know him from primarily. I knew him from the uh, the 1990 live action series, which then in turn sort of feeds into the 2014 one. Now that's an interesting thing to bring up as well because the 2014 TV series closed out its nine season run last month, starring Grant Gustin, and that series both started after they announced that this movie was coming. So this movie has been in development. For the entirety of a nine-season-long TV show, wow! And this version of the character actually did appear in that show. Actually, did make a cameo appearance during a multiverse crossover event in that show. So the expectation was that we were going to see the other side of that appearance when we got to this movie. Um, just to save you some suspense, no, you do not, and there is no mention of the the TV series in this, even though it's a multiverse-spanning thing. Right, so. Ezra Miller is the Flash. He's a member of the Justice League. He's basically the the lower rung Peter Parker of the Justice League. Effectively, if you think about how Spider Man is seen within the Avengers, Flash in this iteration is seen very much the same way in the Justice League. Uh, one day he discovers by chance that if he runs fast enough, he can actually run faster than the speed of time. So he can literally run through time. And he uses this ability to go back in time to a point at which his mother was mysteriously murdered, his father was blamed for her murder, and then found himself locked up, falsely accused, locked up, and facing the death penalty ever since because of it. By going back in time and changing this, he surmises that he can make the world a better place. However, when he tries to return to his own time, he finds himself spat out into 2013, about two days before the events of Man of Steel, you know, the first movie of the DC Extended Universe, of which yep. Flash and Justice League you know, evidently sort of belong. And um, he has messed up the timeline to the extent that there is no one there to face the impending alien invasion of General Zod and his Kryptonian minions and has to team up with his younger, powerless self, who at this point would be 17 years old, also played by Ezra Miller, as well as a now older Tim Burton-ish Michael Keaton version of Batman, and a, a, instead of uh, instead of Henry Cavill's Superman, we instead get Sasha Calle's Supergirl, who has in this incarnation, rather than being out in the world and discovering him, you know, her humanity and being there to face Zod when he arrives, was captured by the government and experimented on, and they are all that stands in the way of a, an, a, an alien invasion of Earth by General Zod. I've got a clip for you. This is the, the this is the two Millers 
This is uh, Ezra and Mrs. Miller, to use the McCabe and Mrs. Miller uh, reference. In the Batcave, remember, this is Burton's 1989 Batcave, literally pulling the tarp off arguably the most iconic of all the Batmobiles. I used to see this thing on the news when I was a kid. If you get this Superman, then you're on your own. You're... You are here. Yeah. I'm Batman. I won't lie, as far as how it sounds to me, that, that it sounds great. And, you know, and it's yeah. got an incredible cast, so surely it was an incredible movie. Yeah, I mean, I, I will point out to you again, yet again that Cats, had, the movie of Cats, had an incredible cast. <laughs> so, you know, that's never a benchmark. And remember what we said about movies that have Assassin in the title recently as well. True. Somehow winds up being rubbish every time. Right. Um, this, I, I, I didn't enjoy this at all. I'm, I'm going to be straight off the bat with that. Now, I will say, of course, like yourself, I'm the easiest mark in the world for this movie because obviously I have an innate nostalgia for Michael Keaton as Batman. And as you can hear from the clip, they're really playing on it. They've got the Michael Keaton Batcave. They've got the music, the Danny Elfman theme is there. Du, 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 du. It's there, you know, the classic suit is there. The great Batmobile, it's there. And he's doing all the great lines. You want to get nuts? Let's get nuts. He's doing it. And, you know, there's one or two people on our screen, you know, whooping and cheering along. But I actually, I saw a fair few bored faces. I actually popped out of the bathroom at one point during the during the screen. As I'm walking back in, I'm walking upstairs. I noticed a fair few people resting their hands on their chins. I'm like, oh, good, it's not just me then. Um, because the film really wants to... The film is about letting go of the past, yet weirdly is obsessed with nothing but nostalgia and in references and like a really un it's trying to do a really unearned version of effectively sort of spider-man no way home but through the prism of back to the future 2 and i mean i was i'll I'll take a little detour now i'll talk about some positives really quickly uh you know so michael keaton very 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 good as batman even though it's quite a lazy performance for michael keaton but Michael Keaton's so innately likable anyway that even when he's phoning it in, he's still pretty good. You know what I mean? He's, he's pretty good. Sasha Kale doesn't get an awful lot to do, but makes quite an impression quite quickly. I mean, I, I, I liked her a lot quicker than I liked uh, Henry Cavill as Superman, for instance. Like, I, I, I was quite taken in by, by her screen appeal a lot faster than Cavill's. I'll give her that. Uh, Andy Muschietti, who directed the It movies... Uh, has directed this, and it's it's quite well directed with some some stylistic flair. Cinematography's pretty good at times, and right mentioning that music, Benjamin Wolfish, or oh, you know that meme where they've got the composer playing the piano on the beach and the piano is in flames. Yeah. That is that is Ben Wolfish on this movie. He's really going for it. The score is better than most of the movie. Like it's a really good score. Um, let me get to Ezra Miller. Now, we I, I prefaced this last week by saying we were going to have to separate the art. I, you know, we were going to struggle to separate the art from the artist on this one. Now, we're really not going to have to, to be really honest, because for all of Ezra Miller's real-life crimes, his you know, their real-world atrocities, they evidently saved their greatest misdemeanors for when there was actually a camera pointed at them. <laughs> oh, yeah. Dear. 
Because I don't know what the hell they think the performances are. Because they obviously they get to play multiple versions of Barry Allen. Yeah. And one version is... I, I don't know what the equivalent would be, what the neurodivergent equivalent of blackface would be. But that seems to be what they're doing for the first chunk of this movie, where he's just doing this weird talking, must leave the table, kind of, you know, uh, you know what I mean, Dustin Hoffman in Rain Man shtick, but then can transform into Peter Parker on a dime. And then you get the younger incarnation in which he's just Eddie, the, Ed, Eddie the crazy roommate from Friends. You remember Eddie, the crazy roommate and friends yeah. with that oh, yeah. laugh that he does every 10th, that. And I swear, every single time I heard, my genitals shrunk a little more. Like every time. <laughs> every single time. A, a small, a piece of my soul died. Every single time I heard, shut up, Ezra, shut up. I could punch you in the face and never tire of it. And yeah, so there's that. And that, that, that's without even going into the real world Ezra Miller stuff. I don't, because that's that's nothing to do with the movie. Right. I say, the movie, again, too steeped in, in nostalgia for its own good. In much the same way that Fast X tied itself into Fast Five because it knew that we all had this ingrained love. The, the high benchmark, the high watermark was Fast Five. Let's, let's hitch our wagon to that. This movie seems to weirdly think that Man of Steel has the same gravitas. A movie that it itself then goes on to kind of undermine by telling us that actually the plot of that movie was pointless. And I do mean literally pointless. Michael Shannon, who apparently shot new material for this, although it seems that they could have actually just pieced it together from rehearsal footage, because there's really nothing new added to that, does literally tell us that the events of Man of Steel were pointless and would have been without Supergirl there anyway. So, not sure what that's all about. Um, the writers of this book, because there were so many different versions, they went through, I think it was seven or eight directors before they got to Andy Muschietti. Uh, Robert Zemeckis, mm. inc uh, incidentally, who directed the, the Back to the Future movies, turned this down. And there are a lot of Back to the Future references in here, because obviously it wants to be Back to the Future too. Like, it's, it's obvious hallmark, benchmark, cultural touchstone is very clearly... Back to the Future 2. I mean, they outwardly stated at one point. Um, but believe me, it's it's no Back to the Future 2. Uh, Zemeckis, though, was among the directors who turned who walked away from this. Jordan Peele was one of them as well. Ben Affleck walked away from this, I believe, at one point as well. John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein, who do have a hand in the, the finished screenplay, which I think gets credited to Christina Hodson. Right, <clears throat> I gotta say, Keaton's far and away the best thing about this. <clears throat> as a film in its own right, though, it just doesn't make sense. It really doesn't. It's A to B logic simply does not hold up. A character can do something in one scene, and three scenes later, that's that limitation that was placed on the first time isn't there. So if a character can breathe underwater in one scene, they can't in another. You know what I mean? It would be like if it. it there's a whole thing where you know how aliens ends with you know how the first alien ends with Sigourney Weaver blowing the alien out into space. Yeah. Imagine if you obviously Aliens, the second one, then ends the same kind of way. Imagine if you then got to Aliens, the same result in the same movie, but it was the same movie. If she did it twice in the same movie, but the second time, the alien could breathe in space and could just walk back inside. That's the sort of logic this plays with, and it doesn't make any sense. And as a result, you're you're left there thinking. Transformers had more real-world physics than this. 
like I, I'm using real world physics, you know, sort of jokingly, obviously, but you know what I mean, like more internal logic than this. Character, we're told that characters can only heal, for instance, via one specific, like if the object that's injured them isn't inside them. But then later in the movie, that isn't the case. And you know what I mean? It's that sort of internal logic where A leads to B leads to C, except when A leads to Z leads to D. And it just doesn't make sense. The the Even the inciting incident of the movie, how Barry changes the timeline, is not entirely dissimilar to how Barry changes it back. And again, it just doesn't make any sense. And you could forgive all of this. And bear in mind, this is the Fast and Furious fan telling you this. You could forgive all of this if it were just entertaining. But it's not. It's mostly either irritating or uninteresting. And in the middle of it all, you have... Eh! <laughs> oh, no. For two hours and 25 minutes. Right. I, I, final thing I'll say on this. <clears throat> this has this was shown to a lot of people uh, in an unfinished form. It didn't have an ending. The final scene was not on the movie when they showed this to a lot of the journalists, influencers, quite noticeably. So all of those positive buzzy reviews you've heard so far prior to us recording this were, were based on an unfinished version they didn't have an ending until i think it was six or seven days ago and it's a very very obvious reshoot and when i say an obvious reshoot i mean kiersey clemens who plays iris west in the movie is in this scene and is an entirely different body type to what she is in the rest of the movie ezra miller in this very obvious reshoot is wearing one of the worst wigs I've ever seen. And then you've got an actor there who looks exactly as they did on the red carpet this week, like down to the facial hair. And you're thinking, this is just the most glaringly obvious reason. You then get a post-credits scene. There was a, at the very, very end of the credits. You get a sequence, no spoilers, but it refers to, and it was quite clearly written and filmed before they had decided what most of the third act was going to be because it literally refers to events that never happened that aren't in the film so it's a complete mess it's not just an unfinished film. it's it's a hodgepodge to the extent where its own characters don't know what events took place in their own movie like, that's how disastrous it is. It made me think a lot, and the most comparable the most comparable touchstone for this is Black... Is it not Black Tower? Dark Tower. Black Tower's a wine, isn't it? Dark Tower, <laughs> Stephen King's... Yeah. Sounds like Believe you needed me. it after this. Um, no, they didn't put a bar on for this screening, which I can't oh. help but think was an epic fail on the part of the publicist. <laughs> if ever there was a movie they, they needed to get you hammered for... This was it. And the bloody ice cream counter was shut as well. Middle of sodding summer, they shut the ice cream counter. Pick <laughs> that one out. Uh, well, Zara and I, I mean, were in there with the slushies. I had to buy slushies. The only way we could cool down during this. Believe me, I was glad. It, sounds, uh, it does sound like a, a bitty movie from, from what you've said. There's one question I mm. have to ask. Go on. Did they use Queen Flash? Ha! <laughs> Uh, no, no, they did not. They did not use Queen. I'll tell you what they did oh. use. They did use, and you, you won't have been able to avoid this if you've been on TikTok or Twitter in the last day or so. Uh, there, is, there are obviously some very heavily leaked uh, VFX cameos. Oh, sorry, I've not mentioned. The VFX in this are dreadful. 
They are absolutely dreadful. For all the, the, the great direction and cinematography, the VFX on this are spectacularly bad, and I do mean PS3 level bad. Okay. And this extends to some very, very heavily leaked cameos, which you and I talked about this off mic beforehand, yeah. uh, do involve the resurrection of, uh, by my count, at least three dead actors. One of them in particular is distasteful to an absolutely unfathomable degree. And, I mean, it's abhorrent. There, there are some jokes in this as well involving Ezra Miller and mental health and things like that that, again, very, very distasteful. And I, I can't quite see how they made it through the edit. But, you know, if, if they're going to wheel Ezra Miller out and allow them to be on the red carpet after everything, then quite clearly we're not talking about you know, the best level of oversight on this film anyway. So I thought it was complete crap. Uh, I think it sends the DCEU out very much the way it came in, which is to say, badly. Um, but it is the end of the DC Extended Universe. It is the end of the DCEU. And good riddance to bad rubbish is all I can say. I mean, this would rank as, I think, arguably about the sixth best one of the DCEU movies. I think there's been nine or ten of them in total if you count black adam maybe 11 or 12 uh but this would count it's not the worst one but it's not even in the top five of the best this is no shazam it's no the suicide squad it's not even a birds of prey and the emancipation of harley quinn it's uh, it, it is rubbish but if you like a bit of michael keaton nostalgia i've got just the movie for you <laughs> Well, I mean, it's already out in cinemas. If you want to go yep. and see it, uh, The Flash, make your own mind up if you wish. Um, right, in a moment, Pretty Red Dress, Inland and Greatest Days, all left to review with Van in just a bit. So uh, we'll be back in a minute. Now it's time for a segment we like to call Offscreen Pays the Bills. Hey, Adam. Hey, Van, what's going on? Hey, nothing going on but the rent. You know how it is. So a big thanks are due to our sponsors this week at HelloFresh. You've doubtless heard of HelloFresh. We've worked with them before, and we're always happy to. They're a fantastic meal box service, best described as a literal recipe for success. Every week, they'll send you the whole shebang, from foolproof instructions to high-quality proteins and veggies. HelloFresh bring out your inner chef with every single tasty, easy-to-prepare meal. And they cater for so many requirements. Requirements like pescatarian, veggie, diets like that. They've even got fun little things like s'mores bundles for the kids. There's always new snacks and, and meals on offer. Best of all for me, because you know what I'm like for rushing things, if you need dinner ready like now, you should have a glance at HelloFresh's quick and easy recipes, which have got fast and fresh options for you that can be ready in literally 15 minutes or less. As I said before, I'm a big fan of HelloFresh. Everything's portioned out exactly for you. The instructions are easy and clear. I do the cooking for my my family largely on the back of HelloFresh, and I'm not going to deny for one second that they have 1,000% facilitated me blagging on my Hinge profile that I can cook. Incidentally, I look like a god recently for making their teriyaki lemongrass beef for a date, so HelloFresh, thank you. But you got to check them out for yourself, and the best part is that if you head on over to HelloFresh.com slash offscreen16, use code offscreen16, you can get 16 free meals plus free shipping, which is madness. Do it, really. HelloFresh.com slash off screen 16 the codes off screen 16 16 free meals plus free shipping you will very very quickly twig as to precisely why they're america's number one meal kit so thanks again to hello fresh now back to the show <laughs> 
Hello and welcome back to the show. Uh, right, we've got two new movies to look at in this segment. We're going to look at Pretty Red Dress in a moment, which is out in cinemas from today. But let's talk about Inland, first of all. Um, I have seen the synopsis to this. Um, there is one thing that stood out, and that is that there's, there's somebody involved in this movie that has a fantastic surname. I'm not going to spoil anything or mention it in a moment, but um, I'll, I'll uh, let you talk about what you thought of it first. <laughs> you're wondering who I'm talking about, aren't you? I'm wondering who you're talking about now. By any chance, is it writer, director, free off rider? No, Mark Christmas. No? Oh, Mark Christmas. Yes, love okay, that well, name. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's worth noting that Mark Christmas is brilliantly credited on IMDb as drunk in brothel. Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> that did make me chuckle. <laughs> Guess Christmas came early this year. Anyway, so um, a new movie <laughs> written and directed by. Uh... <laughs> Bleep that. We're going to have to bleep that. Uh, <laughs> right. So, uh, it's a double entendre. It's fine. If, if they can do it in a Bond movie, we can do it. Yeah, we can do it on a show. It's, it's fine. fine. They, they made that gag in a, in a 12-rated Bond movie. We're fine. So, um, this is credited as being a modern fairy tale. I'm not exactly sure how they worked that out. But it's a feature debut uh, of the writer-director, Free Off Rider. This was uh, pretty big at, at the uh, LFF the end of last year. Uh, stars uh, Rory Alexander and uh, Mark Rylance. So Rory Alexander's a newcomer. Mark Rylance, obviously, you know, been around since time memorial. Most remembered, I think, nowadays as being the BFG in live action for Spielberg back in 20- yeah, of course, 2017. Uh, this is the story of a, a young man who is released from a facility. It appears to be a sort of uh, rehabilitation. I think he's been he's been locked up. It's sort of mental health treatment facility as well as sort of you know lock-up facility he's let back into the community returns to uh, his homestead which i think is in gloucestershire as you'll very quickly get from mark rylance's accent in the clip we're going to play in a moment uh, has returned uh, to find his mother you know long gone the community sort of looking at him you know through the side gaze like suspiciously like always treating him as a sort of an outsider and it's about the mystery of you know what drove him away and, uh, and what he has returned to, what became of his mother and, and the relationship he seeks out with a sort of a mother figure that he has still living there, as well as his ongoing relationship with Mark Rylance's character, who is sort of a boss as well as a sort of a mentor father figure to him. You have a listen. You can sort of hear it here. Where's Toby? Toby? Hmm. Said he couldn't come today. Couldn't come? Well, he's busy, kid. Yeah, what's he busy with? I don't know, he just says he couldn't come. He doesn't want to see me, does he? Come on, you can say it, he doesn't want to see me. Not in so many words. Not in so many words. No. Well, how many words does he want to see me in then? Come on, what's this? An ambush. (laughs) The tone there kind of gives me the impression that it's quite, quite a deep, dark and emotional movie. It it, it wants to be very much a, a sort of a David Lynch drama. It very much right. wants to be a very abstract, and I, I, I suppose actually thinking about the fairy tale thing does make sense to an extent. The writer will describe it as a modern fairy tale because there is a lot about the folklore and the the forest. I think it's the forest of Dean specifically, and and about being one with nature in a sense. There is sort of an undercurrent of that, but it is. I'd say it, it's not a film about plot. Like trying to come up with that plot synopsis for you just now was kind of a stretch because it's not really much of a a plotty film. It is very much about character and relationship and performance and direction. Like even on the script side, it's not really a dialogue-heavy film. 
you know, there is like, for instance, there's a psychic brothel element brought into this, which is where the David Lynch side really comes in. It's like a psychic that works out of a brothel, for instance, which is wonderfully shot. I mean, gorgeous. The whole film is gorgeous to look at, I have to say. Um, and Mark Rylance is always good value for money. Whenever you get Rylance in anything, he's always good value for money. Uh, Rory Alexander as well, I think, is a, a really solid performance here. I say, um, didn't know him from Adam. No, 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 no offense intended. Uh, didn't know him from Adam uh, when he showed up, but solid turn, solid turn. Um, but I, again, this is one very much like what we were saying of our first film, You Can Live Forever. This is like nobody's seeing this on a Saturday night at the multiplex and coming away cheering. Yeah. But it's it's very much one that this is going to be seen by people who take notes during films. You know what I mean? People who keep film journals and letterbox accounts and no one else. Really, no one else. Like the Lynch comparison, kind of stops there. It's not as good as a David Lynch movie. It's worth saying, but uh, I will say, Free Off Rider directorially has got the goods. Maybe should have, maybe should direct from someone else's script in future. But Sterling effort, the goods are there. There's the potential. I can see this guy going places. Well, if you want to make your mind up um, and go and see it yourself, it's in cinemas from today called Inland. Now, Pretty Red. Dress. Let's talk about this. This is a a beautiful, heartwarming, and enjoyable debut film from Dion Edwards. That's what it says on the synopsis. Doesn't really give much else away. Really, what, I mean, because I'm reading the IMDb synopsis, and uh, it, it, said, it says follows a South London family. Yeah, anyway, right. So it's basically a contemporary kitchen sink drama. Uh, contemporary London set kitchen sink drama. Uh, black British family. I think it's Natey Jones. I think plays the sort of patriarch. Is it Natey Jones? Natey Jones is the patriarch. You've got Alexandra Burke as the mom, and they've got a teenage daughter as well. Now he is fresh out of a year in the nick. Like just literally, it's released at the, at the onset of the film, um, and he's sort of sort of finding his way back into society, going working for his brother in a restaurant. Uh, his what his not his wife sort of long term partner slash baby mama played by Alexandra Burke uh, is an aspiring musician and performer and she is up for a performance in a Tina Turner musical. Their teenage daughter, meanwhile, is a sort of a wayward teen, and at the exact point that they come across, wouldn't you know it, a pretty red dress that uh, former X Factor was she the X Factor winner, Alexandra Burke? She was, wasn't she? I think she won. If she didn't, she won second. over JLS. If memory serves, she Ooh, beat JLS. Yeah. It was, it oh, was the right. two of them in the final. Yes, I remember. Believe it or not, I did once upon a time watch the X Factor. Um, so yeah, she beat JLS with the cover of Hallelujah. If memory serves, yeah. So about the point that she finds a pretty red dress that she's going to use for her audition um, that she then gets, this dress then becomes a staple item that sort of sends a ripple effect through the family, and. Ignites certain desires, brings certain forbidden secrets to the surface, and the dress is ultimately like not so much a red dress, so much as a big red honking flag. I'll give you a listen. This, listen to the clip. This is uh, this is them literally coming across the dress for the first time. Look at this. Yeah, it looks nice. Niche, what do you think, Luke? Uh, yeah. How much is it, hun? Oh, the Lily Marvin, it's 279. Ox if they call it for a bit. Do you think you can hold it to the end of the month? No, I can only hold it for 24 hours, I'm afraid. I'm really sorry. 
See, I've never seen Alexandra Burke acting. What's her performance like in this? I hadn't seen her acting either, actually, but uh, she's actually pretty good. I liked her in this. Um, I wasn't, because, you know, you, I, I, obviously I only really remember Alexandra Burke from The X Factor. She's like 20 Same. years old. Yeah, she was like 20 when she was on The X Factor. So it's kind of, kind of weird that it's, you know, like 35 year old Alexandra Burke. Not really used to that. The idea that Alexandra Burke's old enough to play someone's mum is still weird to me. I know she's been on stage in The Bodyguard and things in, in all these years with, like, with the, I'm not sure she followed Beverly Knight or she started it with Beverly Knight. But she's very good. Uh, Natey Jones as well, actually, a great lead. And inadvertent shades of kinky boots running through this at times. But obviously, it's not a funny movie. Like I say, it's very much a kitchen sink drama. Not a feel-good one, by any stretch of the imagination. But a really solid homegrown drama here. I was taken in by this. The performances are, are very good. The story is compelling. Didn't really see where it was going. Did find it, actually, it's, it's, quite, it's got quite an empowering sentiment to it. I will say as well. And um, there was a Disney Plus movie recently that I didn't get to review that everyone was raving about that sounded quite comparable to this. But um, I would genuinely recommend checking this out. If you would like uh, you know, a, a, a proper contemporary British drama, one with solid direction, one with good performances, and one with a story that you won't necessarily be able to preempt and, and you know, second guess, this is definitely worth a look. I, tell you, I, I thought this was really solid. It's um, it's a written and directed by Dion Edwards. Location shot south, I think southwest London. Great supporting cast. I really liked it. I thought this was I thought this was an absolute win. I, I was told in advance that Zara had seen this before ahead of me and said, oh, "You should watch that. It's pretty good." Alexandra, I did, she didn't rate Alexandra Burke actually. I, I felt the other way. I thought Alexandra Burke was very good in it. But uh, yeah, I thought this was a real win. Well, you can make your own mind up if you want to go and see it yourself. Pretty Red Dresses in cinemas from today. Uh, Van, you just mentioned um, mm -hmm. Tim's Tim Firth's Kinky Boots in that review just then. And of course, yes. that's got a connection to Greatest Days, which we're going to talk about in a moment, because Tim Firth wrote the band musical yes. featuring the songs of Take That. And this is a feature adaptation. And we are going to see what Van thought of it in one second. Stay there. Hello and welcome back to the show then. Uh, we've got one last movie to look at that Van has uh, already seen, of course, and it is Greatest Days, which I mentioned earlier, um, written by Tim Firth, who wrote Calendar, Calendar Girls, Kinky Boots. Um, he wrote the band musical, which featured songs of Take That, and this is a feature adaptation of that. So talk to me. What did you feel? What did I feel? Uh, well, I felt that for one thing, I remember way, way too many lyrics to every single bloody take that song, it seems. Also that we're long overdue for the S Club feature film musical. Just just saying, you know. If I'm there for that. Even, I'm there for that one, you know, reach for the stars, you baby. Yeah. But uh, right, so <clears throat> this is not a musical about take that, funnily enough. I didn't It's an adaptation of The Band. I think the show was called The Band. Yeah. And then at some point they changed the name to Greatest Days. Because I think it started out as the band and then it became Greatest Days. Uh, now adapted for the screen, is actually about a group of female friends who are all sort of, I think they're about 40-ish. And uh, they were sort of child, they were, they were sort of tight childhood clique who were sort of united in their love of the boys. Because the band is never named. It's worth noting the band is never named in the film. Ooh. They are either referred to as the band 
or The Boys. And they can't really be Take That because they have a black and an Asian member. And I think we all remember that Take That were as white as snow. So, you know, a, a little bit of reverse whitewashing going on there, I think, in hindsight. I mean... I mean, it wasn't until five that we started to get something of a of shades of diversity in these bands, if you remember the 90s. But, uh, <clears throat> right. So, you get the uh, the group of friends who are reunited when, you, you know, after, after decades apart, having all gone off to live their own lives, when one of them, the lead, played by Ashlyn B. Uh, Ashlyn B, not from Catastrophe. She's from, is it The Long Way Down or the, 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 the sitcom? Um... I know from panel shows, if I'm being really honest. <laughs> uh, when she when she wins, she wins a radio contest, and they get to go to Greece to see the boys perform. And the girls all reunite for the first time in decades, but they've got their grievances and they've got their long festering resentments and their secrets and their lies. And you know they're all going to come to the surface, but all through the medium of musical numbers containing take that songs. Have a listen. Win tickets to see your favourite boy band reunite in Athens. Are you ready? I am ready. Today this could be... Are you screaming yet, Rachel O'Flynn? Big fan of you, Rachel. I'm their biggest fan of the whole entire world. Do you know who you're going to take with you to see the boys? It's 25 years. Double trouble? <laughs> Where is Rachel? Here I am. You ladies are up front. It's a bit odd to me in the sense that mm-hmm. they didn't have the right to name take that in the movie, but they can use their songs, or is that not I, how it worked? I don't think it's about rights. I think it's a creative decision on the part of take that themselves to make it more abstract rather than make it a biographical take that thing. Because... For instance, if you make it actually about Take That, then you have to address the Robbie of it all, for instance. And I don't think anyone particularly wants to bring up the rivalry between Robbie Williams and Gary Barlow. Although, I'll be really honest, that would make for a much more fun movie than this. Now, this is complete pap. I'm not going to bury the lead on this one. Absolute shash. Um, I've seen worse. I've seen worse musicals based on British bands, if I'm honest, because Sunshine on Leith exists. The 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 the, the, the Proclaimers one, like that one, was dreadful. This Cats. is, well, no, but that's 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 a stage musical. I mean, this is a, a jukebox musical based on one specific band, which say Sunshine on Leith was. Uh, or Mamma Mia, for instance, obviously was the same with ABBA, but this is nowhere near in the same league as Mamma Mia. Good Lord, no, no, no. <laughs> Nobody's ever mentioning this as Mamma Mia in the same breath, you know what I mean? Um, like I say, it's a two-star movie that just about scrapes through on Sauvignon Blanc-powered gusto to three stars just by virtue of the fact that everyone seems to be having a good time. And I can only imagine that... The core demographic for this, which I hate to generalise, I really hate to generalise, and I don't mean this offensively, but this is really going to only appeal to gay men or menopausal women. You know, and in most cases, there's going to be a lot of white wine involved. You know what I mean? Like, this is one that the mums get together on a Friday night while the kids are all at some at one of their other houses having a sleepover. The mums all get together, get plastered on Chardonnay, and have a bit of a nostalgia-reminiscent good time. You know what I mean? 
Like, it's one of those. Like, I don't think anyone under... No one under 40 is going to enjoy this, I don't think. Because it's very clearly aimed at, you know, people who were teenage girls when Take That were out. You know, and I've been in long-term relationships with two of those. And I can guarantee one of them is going to absolutely have a field day with this, and the other one's going to try and repress the memory that it ever happened, along with my existence. Um, I can say, it's just, I I found it abominable, but somehow still not the worst one of these I've seen. There is a sequence in this. You could sum this film up rather wonderfully. Actually, no, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a positive first. I will say, it's a better shot British musical than everybody's talking about Jamie was last year. Do you remember everybody's talking about Jamie was a really hyped musical? Yeah. I think Sharon Horgan, funnily enough, who plays Ashley B's sister in that sitcom, was in that as the teacher. Um, That, I thought the musical sequence has really let it down, that it wasn't shot particularly imaginatively enough. The musical numbers in this are actually a lot better realised than anything in either Sunshine and Leith or everybody's talking about Jamie. There was a sequence like on a double-decker bus that I actually thought was really well done where the bus actually folds out and becomes the stage. And that was really, really well done. We had that Will Ferrell, Ryan Reynolds Christmas musical a while back as well. Again, not as well shot as this. So as, as musicals go, this is one of the better shot ones I've seen in some time. Now, <laughs> to sum up this film perfectly would be to point out that there is a musical number in this set on the runway at Heathrow in front of an easy jet. Um, you, yeah. What? Like, and I don't mean there was just an easy jet there that day. It's quite prominent product placement. The premiere for this, which takes place, I think, tonight, because we're recording this on Thursday, obviously. Uh, the premiere in Leicester Square tonight is sponsored by P&O Cruises, quite prominently. And you can't help but feel all the way through this, not without cause, I want to speculate, that maybe Gary's accountant is sharpening his pencils. You know what I mean? Just sharpening his pencils for a bit of fiddling. You know what I mean? If I was going to speculate, apropos of nothing, I'm sure, that maybe Gary's accountant's sharpening his pencils for a bit of cooking the books. You know what I mean? Because there's some, there's some very hefty brand presence in this. Um, a friend of mine, a young lady who uh, works at my local coffee house, uh, auditioned for a role in this, I was told. Auditioned for the oh. role of the younger incarnation of Alice Lowe's character in this. Alice Lowe is in this, incidentally. And I couldn't believe it was the same actress, because why the star, the writer, director, the star of Prevenge would in any way put a name to absolute dross like this is beyond me. But uh, my dear friend there uh, pointed out to me that uh, she auditioned for it and uh, declared the script to have been the worst thing she had ever read to the extent that apparently they were passing it around her dining table and literally laughing at the dialogue in this. Now, having sat through the film already when I was told this, my immediate response was, yeah, yeah, I can absolutely (laughs) believe that. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's absolutely interminable. But you know what? I'll be damned if I didn't sing along with those musical numbers. They they got me. They they got me with those music. This this because it's take that songs. It's songs I grew up with. These songs. You know, I wasn't going really to take that fan. You know, I think at the time I, think I was in my Bon Jovi phase when take that were a thing. I was, Same I was with going me. through my yeah. I was in my Bon Jovi era when because that was when Bon Jovi had these days 
out. Crossroads. That was was crossroads these days kind of time, wasn't it? When when Take That were around. Yeah. Uh, So, no, my sister wasn't really into it. My cousins were into Take That. But, uh, you know, I knew all the songs. And, yeah, I was singing along with it, you know. And I can only imagine that target audience are going to have the time of their lives, rather like the characters do. I imagine it will be successful to them. But I think the lack of marketing speaks volumes to, you know, kind of how they expect it to do. It's, uh, I think, co-funded by Amazon. So it's going to be on Prime Video, I would imagine, quite quite soonish as well. But it is in cinemas from today. Okay. I was just thinking, where you were saying all of that, you know, 15 mm. quid to go and see it and sing along to the songs or sit at home and listen to Spotify. <laughs> I mean, 15 quid for the family plan on Spotify per month now, so, you know. <laughs> good point, good point. Um, yeah. All right, so um, next week, then, we've got The Last Rider to look at. Yes, uh, this is a cycling comeback documentary. We've got uh, Jesus Revolution, which is a 70s set dramedy starring Kelsey Kramer, of all people. Frasier. Uh, don't know what to expect with that one. Uh, the new Curzon movie, The Super Eight Years. Uh, to look forward to next week. Wes Anderson is back with Asteroid City next week, in which Tom Hanks is joining the Anderverse, would you believe? And you can't have missed this one. Jennifer Lawrence is staging something of a comeback in the comedy No Hard Feelings, in which she is literally hired to groom a teenage boy. So... I can't help but feel that if you gender flipped that one, it wouldn't quite play the same way. You know what I mean? Like if it's Miles Teller being hired to sleep with an underage girl, that's not a comedy. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, we will see what you think of it next week. Um, We will return, of course, uh, a week today. So until then, I've been Adam Bull. I've been Van Connor, and we shall return.